Welcome everybody to yet another RPC podcast. We're doing a Bible study through the book of Matthew. We spent the last three weeks covering, uh, first and foremost, how to do a background. And we went through the genealogy as Matthew gave the background context leading up to Jesus' birth. And uh, we also looked into the background of a lot of the characters leading into Jesus' life and why Matthew writes the book the way that he does and includes the things that he includes. And then we spent a week talking through observations and learning how to uh, look at a passage and try to find things that we normally wouldn't see by forcing ourselves to keep looking and looking and increasing that number of observations. And then uh, last week, we had gone through interpretation and application and closed out chapter one. So now we're going to uh, shift gears a little bit. And instead of doing Bible study in front of you, uh, we've all reviewed the passage, and uh, even before starting this recording, had started comparing notes about how many observations we've made and, and uh, which verses were more difficult than the others. And so there's some of that that's already gone on behind the scenes, but we have come prepared to this study, and we're ready to discuss it. So let's get started with Matthew chapter 2. We'll see how far we get. I know that we've all done I, you know, a good chunk of the way into this chapter. So let's get started. Who wants to read the passage for us? And let's start with just the first 12 verses. I'll read the first 12 verses. Okay. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to, to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right. So to open up with this, we want to begin with the background section. Let's get some context of understanding. First off, where did Matthew start in chapter 1? Do you mean where did he start in the genealogy? Uh, not necessarily in the genealogy. I'm just asking generally. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, he's writing. He begins with the genealogy, so that's part of where he started. Uh, where does he go to after that? Uh, before the birth of Jesus. So this is when the angel comes to Mary and Joseph and tells them that they're going to have a child. Um, so right after she's pregnant, this is where it starts. Okay. So we start in chapter one, we see the, the, the prelude to Jesus' birth, but we don't actually see him born, right? Mm -hmm. And then now we get to Matthew chapter two, and temporally, when does this seem to take place 
in the narrative relative to one. This is at some point after Jesus has been born. Okay. So I'm going to ask you guys for a clear and obvious observation right there. And this is going to be an absence. It does not say exactly when Jesus was born. Right. Yeah, I'd say the key thing there is it's interesting that Matthew includes before and after Jesus' birth, but he excludes the actual birth itself, which I feel like other uh, Gospels go into a little bit more. Uh, I believe Luke might be the main one. That being said, uh, so taking, I guess, where is Matthew going with next in the narrative after these 12 verses that we just wrote? Uh, it's basically describing where Jesus and his family went in response to Herod. So it's like, where did they travel? Where did they go? So they went to Egypt. Um, and then all of that happens. And then they come back to Nazareth, um, not Judea. So it's just traveling of Jesus and his family as a child. Right. So we see a lot of stuff about the early Jesus's infancy, like his early childhood, <laughs> that's being laid out in chapter two. And then where does chapter three pick up? John the Baptist. Right, and how old is John the Baptist compared to Jesus? Does anybody know? He was, oh, was he six months older? Yeah, six months. Yep, so he's slightly older, but uh, his mother and Mary were pregnant at the same time. And yep. uh, so we know that if, John the Baptist is out preaching in chapter three. We're jumping forward many years at that point, right? Yeah. So Matthew one and two create somewhat of a coupling. He's saying, let me go into all this background information before I begin the story so that you can see the circumstances leading into the Messiah uh, doing what he's going to do. Yeah. So then like in a TV show, you would then have a, a, a title screen fade over 30 years later Matthew 3 <laughs> that's about right so we got that background on this uh tell me a little bit of background on uh, Bethlehem and Judea so one of the interesting things about this narrative especially when you couple it with Luke and the fact that Jesus does get consecrated in uh, Jerusalem is that Bethlehem is only a few kilometers away from Jerusalem so when the wise men go to Jerusalem, as we'll see, and they speak to Herod, all this stuff is happening only a few kilometers away from where Jesus has already been born. Yep. Uh, it's also in Judea, which is the land of the clan of Judah, from which the promised king will come. Is it just a clan at this point in the narrative? No, this is an entire nation. Right. So at some point, we see in the Kings and Chronicles that uh, Israel, after David dies, ends up splitting, right? So you get through David, Solomon, and then there's all these other kings where Israel and, and Judah basically part ways. And there's one king who is, I don't think he's from David's line, who tries to take over as a uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> he might be from David's line. I just can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, who takes over as king of Israel. And then the tribe of Judah says, no, no, no. We have the true king because we follow the Davidic line. We follow 
uh, through David and Solomon and so on. And so they try to become their own nation. Both of them go cockeyed. <laughs> Neither of them really follow God fully. Judah has a few more acceptable kings than Israel did. Uh, but on the whole, they're separate nations, very split apart. And in the end, I, here we are in Judea, which is uh, part of Judah. And Bethlehem is a small town within that. Somebody tell me about who Herod is at this point. Well, Herod was the Roman appointed king. I believe he was appointed in 39 BC and he would rule until 1 BC. And uh, he was yeah, appointed by the Romans, but he was a particularly cruel and, and tyrannical king, very bloodthirsty. He actually executed two of his sons who were favorites in Jerusalem just two years before the birth of Jesus. And his uh, eldest son, Antipater, Antipater, who would eventually go on to succeed him, was also under trial. So he was a king particularly concerned about succession. Which is a little ironic because what happened to his kingdom after his rule? It got split apart into four different pieces i guess right then like the tetrarchy or whatever it's called yep so who is the herod at the time of jesus's death you know when we go uh, to the crucifixion and all of that and we see jesus being handed over from Pilate to herod and you get that really cool song from jesus christ superstar that i i made aaron listen to when he was over i who's who which herod is that uh, that would be uh, Herod Antipas. Right. And Herod Antipas was the one who ruled over Galilee. There was also Herod Archelaus, 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 I don't know, ruling Judea and Samaria. So you have Judea and Samaria in one hand, Galilee in the other. Uh, and then there were, of course, two others who took over the split kingdom. But it's important to recognize that we're dealing with a different Herod whose reign is about to come to an end right at the time just shortly after this story so here we're talking about specifically the uh, in these first 12 verses the story of the the, the wise men and uh, yep. uh tom can you pull up the other uh book that goes through the story of the wise men and read that for us so that we can get a parallel passage here uh yeah you have to give me a moment <laughs> i just have to throw up in bible gateway you know does anybody else want to weigh in on that? Uh, what was the question again? To, to pull up the parallel passage where that talks about the wise men and the star from the other gospel that addresses it. Um, yeah, I can try to see if there's something. Oh, you guys are all failing on your background section here. It's Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2. That's what we're studying right now. Oh, uh, Where's yes. the parallel one? Completely fading over here. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. We're going to be in silence for a long time. Oh. Is this the only reference to the Magi? There is no other reference. Matthew is the only book that talks about the, the wise men. So let me throw this question out there, too, because this is uh, something interesting. Uh, how many wise men were there? Oh, it doesn't say. 
doesn't say. <laughs> right. We three. always, in story, assume that it's three. The Bible doesn't actually tell us how many there were. Why do we assume that it's three? Three is the one matching gift. What's that? It said one per gift. Right. Old frankincense yeah. and myrrh, so it's like, yeah. So it does seem like it's implying three, but you know, three is just a nice number, isn't it? We always like to think in terms of threes. But the gifts come in threes, you think, oh, the wise men will come in threes. But yeah, there's no reference to the actual number of wise men. Right. And Eastern traditions of Christianity actually uh, assume that there were 12 wise men who collectively brought the three gifts. And that there may have been other gifts involved. We don't know, but these are the ones that were mentioned specifically. And why are these gifts in particular mentioned? And let's, I guess, go we'll ahead and name the gifts first. Frankenstein. Okay. And so why are these gifts in particular uh, referenced in Matthew? I should look that one up. I did hear a long time ago that uh, myrrh was to represent something to do with a funeral. Is that correct? Like the the perfumes for a um, for the anointing of a body that's going to be buried. I okay. might be radically misremembering that though. So there's a reference to Isaiah 60. And so Isaiah 66 says, a multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and praises of the Lord. There you go. What's Matthew's goal in writing his book? One of his goals, I should say, but one of the primary ones that we see recurring repeatedly. Fulfilling the old Right, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to prove that Jesus really is the Messiah referenced in Old Testament scripture. And so here we see that Matthew is clearly emphasizing, we don't know that there may have been other gifts, but we know at least of these ones, and Matthew sees fit to mention them because, hey, just so you guys know that this prophecy was fulfilled, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so this is kind of some background on looking at, okay, well, we've got this story of the wise men, the Bethlehem star. And I guess you guys, are you aware of the prophecy regarding the star? No. So I, I found this one a little strange, but some people, I try to push this and it's called the star prophecy. I think it's numbers 2417. Let me look that up real fast and in the ESV, it says, I, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so some people have, uh, and not just some, I would say a lot of people have connected the star that shall come out of Jacob as being a reference to the star that was going to shine over Jesus. Now, to some degree, it looks to me like the star would be Jesus himself, not a physical star hovering over any particular location. But that is how many people have interpreted it and have tried to connect numbers 2417 to this particular star. Uh -huh. So all of that background being said, let's dive into the text itself. Who wants to take uh, verse one for us? And what I would like to do is each of us just kind of go round table and actually let's just do it in alphabetical order 
And we'll each take a verse at a time and we'll share what we know from the verse or what we've discovered through our independent reading or study. Um, Aaron has got the most alphabetical name ever. So. <laughs> yeah, you can't get better than that. Yeah, I always used to be the first on the register at school because of my last name. But um, yeah, double A for Aaron. <laughs> So we'll let Aaron go first. Aaron, you can go ahead and share some of the thoughts you had on verse one here. And then after you're done, we'll open the floor for anybody else to supplement what you may not have said. Uh, this is not an opportunity to say, let me read through all 20 of my observations on this verse, uh, because that would make this Bible study take forever. So we're not going to do that. Instead, uh, just give us the overview of things that you've noticed that you found to be most significant. And if there is something massively significant that somebody else realizes, uh, then we can go ahead and weigh in afterward. Great. Okay, so with this verse, what I noticed is all the places. So it specifically mentions Bethlehem, Judea, um, Jerusalem as physical places. Um, and then also uh, from the east, that is also that's nonspecific. So it's listing all these specific places. So like exactly in Bethlehem of Judea and then um, wise men from the east. It doesn't say where from the east. It's just saying from the east somewhere. They're coming to a specific place. So I'm seeing this as location is is uh, important um and then this is all taking place after jesus was born so continuing the narrative of before jesus's birth and what happened with that this is after jesus has been born what happened um this is happening in at a specific time period so like there's a lot of time words so now and after and um in the days of so another thing that's important is time. So place and time are both important. And Matthew is drawing focus to this. And then Herod the king. So Herod is mentioned as the king specifically. And uh, that's mentioned a few other times in the upcoming verses. So you have one of the, I guess, characters here. So there's Jesus, there's Herod, there's wise men that are all characters starting in Matthew 2. And that continues on for basically the entire um, chapter. So Matthew is basically setting up like all of the different key places and um, people and times in this first um, verse. And I think that was the majority of what I noticed other than um, so the wise men themselves, like what are wise men? Why are they from the east? What's important about the east? Um, where specifically in the east? So a lot of questions associated with that. And like, why, you know, what's the deal with Wiseman? Why isn't it like, you know, a Jewish prophet or something like that? Um, so it seems a little bit obscure. And yeah. State that question again. What's the importance of Wiseman? Why are they from the east? Where is the east? And why wouldn't it be like a prophet from Israel that comes and gives okay. this information. So. so on the question of who are the wise men specifically, what do we know about them? We know, well, first of all, we know that they were wise, but we also know that they were looking at the stars. And so in mm -hmm. some church tradition, they've been, they've been called Persian astronomers. 
Yeah, I would, um, if they're looking at stars, I would assume they're, yeah, astrologers. So, like, they specifically read meanings from the stars. And I know Babylon did a lot of that, uh, of astrology. Persia, not sure. I haven't looked into that. But in Daniel, I know it mentions that there were court astrologers and court magicians and all of these different um, people. So that somewhat tracks. But again, it doesn't say specifically in this um, verse. So <clears throat> have you ever all heard the Christmas song, you know, we three kings of all, right? The, yeah. why are they called Sorry. kings? Well, uh, one thing that's kind of extra textual at this point, because it's going to be talked about in the later verses, is that they're coming to do this proscunio, this veneration. In the ESV, it's translated as worship, but the Greek is actually broader than that. It can just mean like the respect you pay to a ruler. Uh, it, it feels like a royal procession. It feels like a delegation of kings coming to pay homage to uh, the king of this nation. Okay. They have treasures and they offer gifts. Right. So what was the, I think somebody had made a reference earlier to Isaiah 60, uh -huh. right? What was that in reference to? Uh, so the Queen of Sheba or something in there. Let me uh, pull it up. Oh, that's quick. right. The gold and, gold and uh, incense, Frank right? Incense. Yep. <clears throat> so, and let me see if I can find what verse that was real fast. Uh, Isaiah 66. Six. Yeah. Right. If you go back a little bit to, to verse 3, Isaiah 63 says, uh, and nations shall come to your light in kings to the brightness of your rising. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of references in this section to uh, this bright star, and they mentioned twice that they saw it rising. And so we have these people who, uh, it says, you know, the nations shall come to your light. It doesn't say what nations. Uh, it could very easily be nations from the east, right? Uh, who are coming to the light over him. Uh, and it's mentioned, it calls them kings to the brightness of your rising, right? So it's possible that they're the ones who were giving the gifts. And so some people have interpreted that prophecy to mean that these three wise men must have been kings. Uh, we don't know for sure that that's the case. In fact, I would wager that they were probably not actually kings. Otherwise, we might see Herod treating them a little bit differently. But you never know. And in right. fact, the word king often times was not just over entire empires, uh, but it could even be somebody who was a king over a local clan. Uh, so they might have been rulers within their own limited locality that could be dubbed kings. So there's a little bit of stretching that can be done there, but that was one of those things that I found interesting when looking into the history of the wise men themselves, uh, is that some people thought they were kings, and that's where we get the popular song from, even though there's no actual indication that they were, other than this vague illusion in uh, Isaiah 60, verse 3. Right. I think Psalm 72, 11, I have also mentions, may all kings fall down before him, and uh, some people, I know Wikipedia, for example, has a line referencing that is oh that might be another reference to them being kings although it's extremely thin yeah yeah i, I think one of the things aaron said was uh, really great that 
there's not much said about them and there's not much we can glean from them. And Matthew didn't think it was that important, ultimately. Didn't think it was that important to tell us more. Why not? Um, possibly because they, their identity could have been anyone. It wouldn't have made a difference to what they were doing. The information we do have, that they were wise, that they were from the East and foreign. It says uh, in verse 12, I think, that they went back to their own nation, so outside of Israel, not just the East of Israel, uh, that they were foreign wise men who came to Proscunio to worship or venerate this king of the Jews. Uh, well, ultimately, I think what it gets back to is that Jesus is going to be recognized by the nations and not just by those in his own nation. Right. Or the short answer is simply because their identity isn't relevant to the fulfillment of prophecy, only that they were there and that they gave golden frankincense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we do, in other words, we don't really need to do too much digging. Correct. It's interesting, but it's not that important. Yeah, he's vague for a reason. And he's specific for a reason when he says Bethlehem, Judea, Jerusalem. This is exactly where Jesus was born. This is when he was born. This is who was reigning. So he's drawing attention to what is important and then making vague or obscuring what's not that important. Right. All right, so moving on to verse 2. The uh, And I'll take that one because I think I'm next in alphabetical lineage. And I, goodness, this is one that I had the most observations on. I... So they came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Right. Now this is fascinating that this concept of them calling him the king of the Jews. I did a little research on this and found that nowhere in all of scripture does a, a God-believing person or Christian or anybody who's a follower of Jesus or Yahweh ever call Jesus king of the Jews. It is only ever Gentiles and non-believers who call him this. Uh, in this situation, the wise men, even though they are obviously coming to worship Jesus uh, and may have believed in the prophecy, are still Gentiles. They're not of the Jewish people. And instead, if you look in the book of Mark, it's uh, Mark 15, 32, I believe, uh, where the Jewish leaders actually call him the king of Israel instead. And Mark actually has five references to king of the Jews in that chapter alone that are all used by Gentiles, and the one time he has a Jewish leader speaking, it's king of Israel. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that, it, and it seems like Mark is trying to make a specific point out of uh, the title that's given and how the Jews versus the Gentiles uh, viewed this title differently. Uh, so these wise men are coming, not necessarily from a standpoint of Israel, but looking at Jesus as the king of the Jews, uh, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, emphasizing the fact that Jesus was in fact born. He did not descend from heaven the way that he eventually ascended back, uh, but he had a birth, he had a death, and eventually an ascension. But there was never a descending, which is fascinating. I, although it sounds like if you take a futurist view of Revelation, he may eventually descend for that purpose. So, for we saw his star when it rose. Again, the star, we've already referenced some history there, so I'm not going to dive into that again. Uh, when it rose, it, they'll mention it rising again. Uh, but the idea that they saw it when it rose means that it's, it already rose at one point. And so, 
the implication I get here, and this is one of the questions that I have off of verse two, is uh, do you get the implication that the star rose and then it's gone and they're looking for where it was? Uh, and then it later reappears in a, in a later verse? Or do you get the impression here that the star has been lingering around for quite a long time? This is one of the things that confused me, actually. So they go to Jerusalem from wherever they came from in the east. They didn't go directly to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is very close to Jerusalem, so they get almost all the way there. But then they have to go around asking, where is the Christ? Where is he to be born? And they only find out when Herod tells them, Herod finds out from the chief priests and scribes, and then he summons in a secret meeting, the wise men tells them to go to Bethlehem, search diligently for the Christ, and then they go to Bethlehem, but the star actually leads them all the way to the house. And how the star does that exactly, I've, I've no idea. It seems to imply that the star was actually hovering over the house in some discernible way, which is miraculous. Right, uh, we'll get there too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, jumping ahead of things here. But yeah, that, that seems to be the sense, is that the star was either disappeared or, uh, or you know, ended up changing its behavior in some way. And I don't know if you want to allow me to jump to uh, one of the verses where they head off there. Let's see, where is it? It's verse uh, 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So that was, they followed the star to the house where the child was. And then when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, which seems to be that they responded to the star itself. So the star was doing something different. Yeah. So two more things to note out of verse two here. The first one is that the reference to the star is possessive. For we saw his star. So they know that this star is of significance to a specific person. It's not just, oh, we saw this crazy star and decided to follow it, right? They knew what they were looking for. Uh, and this is even more evident. And that's the second thing is when they arrive in, in uh, Jerusalem, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? As if they already know what the prophecies were saying, right? So they, there's this implication that they know what the prophecies are about the king of the Jews, and they're looking for the fulfillment of that prophecy, uh, which gets really bizarre when we get a, a little bit later. And they start asking, and it's clear that Herod has to go to the chief priests and the scribes in order to get the answer. Because even though these wise men knew about the prophecy, they didn't know enough about it. So that's kind of fascinating. But either way, that's all I got on verse 2. I, Joseph, you want to take verse 3 for us? Would you mind if I just add one more detail to verse 2, which I think was sure. really interesting? It's that they, they ask not where is the king of the Jews, but where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is someone who uh, was actually born into the kingship, not someone who acquires it. Right. I find that detail also really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I have that as well, that it's a title that's acquired by birthright, not a title that's acquired by uh, assuming it for your own, from your own ambition. So one interesting thing in addition or question is, is astrology real? So in, like another interpretation of how they're obtaining this knowledge is like they have some, they do astrology, right? And they have whatever meanings are associated with stars and these kinds of things. So they independently are like, oh, 
the king of the Jews is associated with this star and it appears. So let's go like check that out versus them knowing all of these Jewish prophecies and then starting to go to that. So it's like some weird independent verification that <laughs> this is happening. Like even in the pagan world, they're noticing, oh, the king of the Jews is being born. Let's go worship. And I guess I should ask off of that is, do we really know that they are astrologers or do we just assume that because they're looking up at the stars and decide to follow a star, that therefore they must be astrologers? That would be an assumption. They're wise men, they're from the East and they're pulling meaning from the stars. Right. And in fact, if we look a little bit later, and I know we're jumping all over the place a little bit here, but when we see the star uh, rise again and they decide to follow it, it moves ahead of them and they're following mm -hmm. this star and it lands over the house where Jesus is staying, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which tells me, I mean, if no matter how big a star is up in the sky, yeah. I mean, I can think of whether the North Star or the times that I've looked at Jupiter that looked like a star and it was bright up there. I mean, you could tell it was the brightest star in the sky at the time. Yep. And could you look up in the sky, even with how bright, imagine the star was even 10 times brighter and think, oh, well, that's sitting over that house right there. <laughs> I doubt it. No. So it, it tells me that whatever star they were seeing was really so low to the ground uh, and separate from all of the other stars that it was uh, it not is not really an astrological phenomenon. It tells me that it's more uh, a, a just a shining light that was guiding them. That the best description they could have for it was that it's a star. Gotcha. Probably, so, the, probably the better translation for these guys then is not so much the wise men as the well. It was pretty common sense when you look back at it. Men. <laughs> yes. Because I have to imagine that even if they were not astrologers, that they probably would have been shocked to see this low-hanging light that is hovering over houses. So anyway, all of that aside, Joseph, why don't you take verse three for us? Actually, Tom, you go ahead. I was on holidays last week, so I didn't get this assignment, but I'll chime in where I haven't said. I got you. Okay, sure thing. Uh, so let's see here. So this is about Herod hearing about the uh, uh, about what the wise men have come to Jerusalem to say and him being troubled and Jerusalem being troubled with him. So we have uh, this intimation that Herod isn't getting it directly from the wise men. It's actually that the wise men have gone to Jerusalem and they're asking people who they're asking we don't know, but the, the rumor is spreading that there's this group of men, this group of wise men who have shown up and they are looking for the Christ. They followed a miraculous star to Jerusalem and they want to know where the Christ, the King of the Jews has been born. And they're actually looking for a, a child who has been born. So uh, that's one thing. The, so Herod's heard not just that the King of the Jews has been born, but that the wise men have shown up in order to pay proscumio to him. They want to worship him. They want to revere him. And we know from some extra textual background history, as I mentioned earlier, that Herod was a cruel, sadistic man who had just killed two of his. Uh oh, I think we lost Tom. Sounds like it. All right. Anybody else want to chime in on something interesting you noticed from verse three?
I guess I'll do so. I, hmm. I, I find it fascinating. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Why would Jerusalem be troubled about the king of the Jews being born? You would think that Jerusalem would be excited for the king of the Jews, right? Or you know, Herod might have reason to be concerned or upset because his uh, status of power is in jeopardy if this uh, you know, warrior king that the Jews expected the Messiah to be is finally being born. So why in the world would Jerusalem be troubled alongside Herod? Maybe the one possibility is Herod overreacts. And um, if there is, since he, well, based on what Tom said, he killed his two sons. And so if there is somebody who is vying for power, um, that's going to cause what social unrest or something like that. Yeah, that very well could be. And it makes you wonder how many of the Jews in Jerusalem didn't actually believe the Messiah was a real person who would come, right? Because it's like, oh my goodness, this person who's being claimed to be the king of the Jews is, is now being born and this is going to cause all kinds of unrest, but we know it can't be for real, right? And it's just like all those people out there in the world today who claim to be Christians, uh, and yet the idea of Jesus actually returning or expecting anything from them is just this, oh my goodness, somebody's just going to cause a problem for our lives, right? <laughs> it's, and so there's a sense that I get where there's all these Jews who may not even have really believed what their uh, own historical religion had said, and they'd maybe moved on during their time in captivity and thought, eh, that was all the stuff that our forefathers believed. We don't really believe that anymore. Much the same way that uh, I would imagine the uh, modern nation of Israel really is not oriented around the Old Testament laws and and the, the scriptures the same way that you would think when you see a lot of what Jesus' ministry with the Jews looks like. Mm -hmm. So we're going to uh, get off and hop right back on, and we're going to try to fly through the rest of the verse, uh, 12 verses. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, go ahead, Tom. Okay, so we had a little internet outage, and we're carrying on. So the only other thing I wanted to add to verse 3 is that there is an absence point to make here, which is that God did not withhold from Jesus being born in a very uh, uh, evil period under a king who was willing to kill a two-year-old in an attempt to kill Jesus. He didn't put him in the kingdom of a king who was religiously expecting and, and hopefully waiting for the Messiah. Yep. So, Aaron, you want to take verse four for us? Sure. Okay, so, um, Herod, one, doesn't know when um, or... Can you read the verse first? Oh, yeah. Four is, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay, so main point of this is Herod doesn't know where... Christ is to be born to that he is conflating what the um, wise men said about he who has been born king of the Jews with the Christ so they didn't mention the Christ but somehow those two ideas are connected 
being a king and being the Christ. Um, and he went and sought after the yeah chief priests and scribes where the Christ was to be born. Um, so who are the chief priests and the scribes? Basically the scholars. So like the chief priests are the ones that, yeah, the scribes are the scholars. They like study the scriptures and know a whole lot. And they uh, were the ones who literally wrote it down and made sure the written law was preserved. Right. So if anybody is going to have seen Bethlehem or something said about where the Christ was to be born, it would have been them. Right. And the chief priests are the ones, I assume, primarily responsible with um, facilitating sacrifices and upkeep of the temple and dealing with that. But I'm sure they are also well-versed in scriptures. Right. So carrying from there into verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And so uh, the they is obviously referencing the chief priests and scribes answering Herod's question. Uh, they're, uh, in, it's not surprising, as much as they knew the scriptures, that they had the answer right on the tip of their tongues. Uh, oh, yeah, it's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea which is uh, interesting that it's in, they don't just reference it as Bethlehem. It's in both verse 1 and here, Bethlehem of Judea, trying to give some emphasis to that from Matthew. Uh, for so it is written by the prophet, uh, telling us, okay, well, we've got a prophet here who's speaking something. They identify him as the prophet, uh, but they don't say the prophet by name, which is bizarre. And what's even more bizarre to me is that I believe I the prophet referenced in... Uh, this chapter is Micah, but the, when they use the same phrase, the prophet, in chapter one without identifying the prophet, it was Isaiah. So you can't just assume that because they say the prophet, that, oh, it's got to be Isaiah because Isaiah is the main prophet who talks about the forecoming of or the coming of Jesus. No. So we have two different prophets now who are referenced as the prophet. So it's just a general phrase for really anybody who has a, a prophecy relevant to the question at hand. Another so interesting point there is when Matthew references the prophet earlier, it quotes from two different prophets. So it quotes <laughs> Malachi and Isaiah, and it says the prophet. Oh, fascinating. I didn't pick or, up on that earlier. You know, maybe it's later. It's about John the Baptist. I can't remember where it is, but. Okay. So not our chapter one section, but apparently the phrase the prophet will show up again soon. Anyways, continue. So, actually, I think that's all I got on, on verse 5. I, verse 6, I want to do something a little unusual here. Uh, does anybody know the reference that this is coming from? Yeah, Micah 5, 2. All right. So, you, I think the unusual thing you're going to guess towards here is that it's a paraphrase. This is uh, not an exact quotation. Not, not even that. Let's uh, read it. Well, I want two of you guys to read this simultaneously, right? Just to see okay. how, how closely these go. So, uh, Aaron or Joseph, do you want to read the Matthew version? And uh, Aaron, if you can read the Micah 5.2 version and try to read them at the same time. Both of you use uh, the ESV if you can. And let's see how well these line up. <laughs> okay. All right. Let me pull the ESV, actually. One sec.
Okay, I've got it pulled up. Read at the same time? Yeah. All right, start in three, <laughs> two, one. But you, and you o Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Judah, who are too little to be among are the by clans no of Judah, least among from you shall come forth Judah. for me. For from you shall come a ruler, ruler in Israel. Who will shepherd my people Israel. coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. <laughs> Do these that all sound alike? Nah. <laughs> And I, I know that we're reading an Old Testament was from Hebrew and a New Testament was from the Greek, but you would think that the translators, knowing that these two verses were meant to mean the same thing, or were they, I would try to find some more opportunity to, to interpret them or translate them to be consistent with one another, yet they don't even try. <laughs> and why do you think that is? They were very loose with their Old Testament understanding. Or rather, they picked out all the relevant parts and just kind of like skipped over the things that didn't matter, although it doesn't negatively affect the interpretation. I don't, I can't agree with that because in Micah 5, the prophecy given there actually is stronger for the divine and messianic origin of Jesus. So this is the, um, Joseph, you have it in front of you. The one who is eternal comes from eternity, the ancient one. Yeah, from of old, from ancient. From of old, yeah. Mm. So you'd think Matthew would actually be at pains to quote the uh, exact correct Micah one. Say that again? You would think that Matthew, who's trying to um, you know, show that Jesus fulfills prof uh, prophecies, is going to quotes that last part which he leaves out from Micah which is that Jesus is this ancient one so let's look at a couple of the distinctions between the two passages so the first one I Matthew starts and you whereas Micah starts but you why would they change it from a but to an and um I I'm pretty sure they're the same word but it depends on what's coming before. So like perhaps in verse one of Micah, there's something going on. And then the but is just contrasting that in a negative or an opposite way what came before. Whereas in Matthew, the and is, I don't know, it's just there. I wonder what the Septuagint actually says in Micah 5.2. Does anybody happen to have that handy? So I'm going to go ahead and say there's a GAR, so G-A-R or Gamma Alpha, whatever it's called. And that word means both for, or and, and but, or it can mean both. So in the Septuagint, Micah 5.2 starts out with Chi, K-A-I. Okay, so that's and. Or Kappa, Alpha. Yep, and so that just means and, that is not, uh, wait, no, that can mean both, sorry. GAR is for, my bad, mistake. But yeah, Chi can mean both. Okay, interesting. Well, I learned something there. I, I do know that the connection, if you look in Micah 5.2, it starts off with uh, about troops being mobilized and siege is laid against us with a rod, they will strike the cheek of the judge of Israel. And so there's this draw of attention to war. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, the but 
kind of contrast that. And it, um, some of me makes me wonder if maybe by having it translated with the but, if they were to tell, start their quotation to Herod with a but, he's going to say, well, hold on, but what? <laughs> and he's not, they, they don't want to draw his attention to any war. And so there's a good chance they say, well, it could also be interpreted as and. So we're just going to say, and you, O Bethlehem, you know, just kind of like, oh, we're, we're just quoting in the middle of a passage here. You don't need to know what comes before that, Herod. <laughs> Some of that is it's Bethlehem right here. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they both say, oh, Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, uh, in Micah, it says Ephrathah, uh, whereas uh, in Matthew, it says, in the land of Judah, and then are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So read that again, and are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. You're not the least. Whereas Micah is saying, I, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, right? It's saying you are basically the least. Why do you think that they're they're flipping this? I, I don't know the exact reason that you're driving at, but why they would flip that. But I I didn't even consider that they... See, I said earlier that Matthew would be at pains to state that thing about the ancient one. But... I see now that this isn't Matthew per se, this is Matthew quoting the chief priests and scribes speaking to a tyrannical king. Right. So, Matthew's not quoting the prophet for his own purpose to say, look, here's a prophecy Jesus fulfilled. He's saying, no, no, this is what they told to Herod about right. the prophecy. And it, he uses an exact quotation from them. <laughs> I, even though any good Jew who looked into this prophecy you know, they could pull up their scriptures or they would take it to somebody and they would be able to look at this and say, that's not what that says. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a, a great point. I didn't even consider that. And so I, yeah, I was confused why he had, I, I could get a paraphrase earlier. That's what I thought was going on here. I thought he was just gesturing towards it and speaking a bit loosely because the readers would understand or something like that. But yeah, actually that's a pretty good explanation. So why does, why does he flip? So, do you think Herod would have felt very good about this Bethlehem town that's supposed to be significant? And in, in his eyes, he's thinking, oh, you know, some Messiah is supposed to be born from Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is part of my kingdom. Do you think that Herod would have enjoyed hearing, oh, it's only a small village among all the people of Judah, <laughs> you know, too little to be among the clans of Judah? And so instead, it, it to some degree, I wonder, and I'm just speculating here, I obviously don't know for sure, but I wonder if the uh, chief priests and scribes weren't buttering up to uh, Herod here and saying, oh, you're by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, <laughs> right? Trying to make it look like this town in Herod's kingdom isn't some feeble podunk nothing, which it really was. <laughs> that seems like a very plausible interpretation. Because we know from Old Testament passage time and again, these advisors to, uh, to the kings, especially the secular kings, were willing to tell them whatever they wanted to hear to keep them happy. And I could very easily see these chief priests and scribes being willing to compromise how they quote the scriptures to Herod in order to appease him and keep him happy too. Yeah, I mean, you contrast that with, with the other Herod and John the Baptist, right? And he's beheaded because he's not willing to do this. 
Right. And then there's a, another interesting where, where Matthew says, for from you shall come a ruler, whereas Herod, or sorry, Micah says, uh, from you shall come forth for me. That for me is distinctly absent. One who is to be ruler in Israel, right? <laughs> so then you have who will shepherd my people, Israel. I don't even know where that came from. I, whereas Micah says, who's coming forth is from, from of old, from ancient days. Oh, that you know what? There's in Micah 5, 4, it says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Ah. The majesty of the name of the Lord is God. So it shows up a little bit later. Okay, so they truncated it. <laughs> yeah. But they did drop that very significant who's coming forth as from of old, from ancient days. Yeah. So it's all fascinating to me. And like I say, we're not going to know for sure why these uh, chief priests and scribes were misquoting scripture to Herod, or if it's just a summary of, you know, here they told him this just off the top of their heads rather than quoting it. But the reality is the chief priests and scribes were required to memorize every word of scripture. And in fact, they had to know it so well uh, that if I recall correctly, I, from studying about how they were discipled and what they were trained to do, is in order to ensure the accuracy of the scriptures that the scribes were writing, they had to be able to take a number that was random and they would say like 5,326 and they would have to be able to point to the character that was written that far in and make sure that it matched up so that way they could do random spot tests. And they were required to memorize every single word and letter of the scriptures front to back, Genesis to Malachi. I word perfect and to be able to say it backwards which it just baffles me i mean i have like the book of philippians memorized but no way i could say it backwards <laughs> uh, but that's how well these uh, chief priests and scribes were intended to know the scriptures and were studying to be able to do it that thoroughly and so for them to make a mistake by speaking off the cuff seems implausible to me right but why exactly it's different i'll leave that to our listeners to research and discern for themselves let's go on to chapter or sorry not chapter verse seven who whose turn is it uh, let's so, go with yours uh, me so verse seven says then herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared so again we go back to aaron's earlier point that time is a significant factor here. We, uh, uh, we don't even know when the star first appeared, but the star has caught the attention of Herod. Um, now we've also got the fact that Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He didn't wanna make a big show out of meeting with them. Uh, now, why would that be? Well, possibly because of the growing turmoil around the news that they had brought with them and the fear of, of Herod, which, as we just saw, may well have even have penetrated into his chief priests and scribes. They were lying about what scripture said in order to keep this man calm, uh, tell him what he wants to hear. So he summons them secretly, and, you know, I mean, that might also be part of his later plan, mightn't it, to kill the uh, young children in Bethlehem. Uh, he didn't want people to know that he knew what was going on in Bethlehem. And so the wise men were going to become his spies. So he also ascertains from them 
what time the star had appeared. That means, I think, that he just asked them and they told him. So uh, they were completely willing at this point and trusting to tell him uh, what they knew. And uh, yeah, they, they don't mistrust him. But I, I think the important part of this verse is the time issue. It's a very uh, important part of the entire Christmas narrative is that we're not entirely sure of the time period. We don't even know how long the wise men have been in Jerusalem. Right. Any other thoughts or questions on verse 7? Um, it doesn't say that Herod asked any other information other than what time the star had appeared. So you could read that as um, one, Matthew just leaves that out, or two, Herod doesn't care about any the any other information that they may have other than, okay, when did this appear? And why did he care about the timing again? Uh, probably for age ranges. Right. Of children born, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, does anybody want to take verse 8? We don't necessarily have to keep going in order. Um, I have not done observations for any of the rest of the verses. so That's fine. And it, even if you and Joseph want to take a verse, even if you haven't done observations on it, you yeah, can, can still speak off, off the cuff. cuff. Sure. Um, okay, so I'll read verse 8. And he said, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Uh, so one thing I notice is Herod is tasking them, the wise men, with going and finding the child and not any other, any other individual or group of individuals. Like he doesn't send the chief priests and the scribes to go find them. He sends these um, wise men for whatever reason to do that. And significantly, if he knows he's going to go try to kill this kid... Wouldn't you send like some kind of Roman guard or legion out to go slaughter him? <laughs> right. But no, he's sending these strangers who he has no power or authority over <laughs> and assuming that they'll just do his bidding. I mean, I that's so. pretty narcissistic right there. <laughs> right. Maybe it would be suspicious for him to send out Roman soldiers or his own soldiers or whatever to find the child. Um, yeah, I don't maybe... think... So I don't think this is narcissism. I think it's cunning. I think he's lying about his intentions. He says that, uh, so I too may come and worship him. He's trying to trick these wise men into revealing the location of the child, which also ties in with the fact that he met with them secretly. Right. And then um, one aspect of this that I can't remember if I mentioned before, but the wise men wanted to worship Um the king of the Jews, basically, which is interesting. So, like, I don't know if king worship was common back then, or rather, or in which places it was good to worship kings. I know you worshiped gods and stuff, but kings, um, not sure. And then for Herod to say, I'm going to come worship him, that's also interesting. Um, yes, yeah, so Again, with, with this word worship, the Greek is proskunio, which does have a broad range of meaning. It doesn't just mean the kind of worship you give up to gods. Uh, it could also mean that. It does it is used in that way, but it's also used in a more secular way too. Okay, sure. It's also interesting to me that he says to bring word of the child. 
when they find him, right? It doesn't say that they're to bring the child to him. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me as well. That you know, you would think that Herod would say, Oh, if you find him, you know, have his family come on over, I'll host him at my palace, and we can uh, all have a good old party while I stab him to death, <laughs> right? So that I find interesting. That's part of the secrecy, I think, is like, let me do everything at every step of the way, let me be as secretive as possible. So, like, him going there, that's putting it in his court to go and do stuff versus bringing him to Jerusalem. There's going to be a lot of people seeing that and a lot of people, like a lot of press, basically. Whereas if he goes, he can like do whatever he wants. Right. <clears throat> and now the uh, other thing that's, there's a couple things that I'm starting to think of too. Uh, one is how does Matthew have any clue what happened in this conversation? That's a good question. (laughs) I mean, I have to imagine maybe the wise men, when they arrived, told Mary the story, and Mary later on told Jesus and the apostles and all of that. So it's possible that the wise men explained to Mary what happened in this conversation, especially once they found out that, oh my goodness, you know, Herod's probably going to try to kill him. Let's uh, make sure that Mary and Joseph, although it was an angel who had to warn them to leave. But either way, that, that's one fascinating thing is how do we know, how does Matthew know what's being said here at all? Maybe, uh, hmm? uh, I was going to say maybe some of the chief priests or scribes, um, it's known that some of them became Christians after uh, Jesus ascended and they became disciples and stuff or were part of the church. So maybe there were a couple of them that were in this little meeting with Herod. That's fascinating, too, although that wouldn't explain the knowledge of the secret meeting. Uh, yeah, no, it would be both. It wouldn't be, it would be like, okay, Matthew's pulling from multiple sources. So, like, yeah, yeah the wise men tell Mary, and then you have the other people telling, or the, the chief priests or the scribes or whoever, um, telling Matthew about the other right. aspect. So the other thing here is that Herod assumes that they will have to search diligently for the child. And let's hop into verse 9, and how hard did they actually have to search? I mean, were they knocking on door after door? Is the Christ child here? Is the Christ child there? Yeah, so the diligently comment, they they had no idea where in Bethlehem the child was. Uh, that, that's this, there's this real element of lacking knowledge, lacking knowledge of where the star appeared, when it appeared, why it appeared, who the child is where he is in Bethlehem, or where in fact he, he was, because he has to go to the chief priests. But then God, through the star, shows the wise men exactly, miraculously, which house he's in. Going into verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, until it came to rest over, uh, yeah, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So we already talked about this a little bit, so I don't want to spend too much time on this verse, but it's fascinating that uh, the way that he introduces this, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose the first time, the rising that was referenced in verse 2, it makes it look like the star was gone, and then all of a sudden it comes back. (laughs) And this leads to another question that I had, which is, why did God want these wise men to show up 
at Jesus's uh, home or birth or wherever he was staying at the time in his infancy. Why was that necessary? And we could say, oh, well, to fulfill the prophecy, obviously. But the prophecy is prophesying what would actually happen, right? God could have prophesied that nobody would come, right? So why is it significant that God's going to say, I got to make sure that these wise men get over there and I'm going to give them this bright shining light to hover over this house so that they can find exactly where he's at? A broader version of that question might be, why is the infancy of Jesus so important? It's only discussed in two Gospels and then only briefly. It's, you know, like you said, it's Matthew 1 and 2, and then there's that, that title screen 30 years later. We see so little of Jesus' infancy, the story of Jesus at the temple being another one. Uh, but why, yeah, why, why do the wise men go to pay respects to him when he's still a baby? I mean, it's quite interesting when we get to verse 11, not what to just skip ahead, but when we do get to verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. The child, they, they worshipped the child. He didn't even understand what was going on. Or piggyback off of your question, why go when he's still a baby? But here we have these wise men who know that he's the king of the Jews. And the chief priests and the scribes, it says in verse 4, he inquired of them, he being Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, right? So the chief priests and scribes know that this guy is going to be the Messiah and you've got these uh, Herod who knows, and then you've got these wise men who know about the prophecy and know he's the Messiah. And yet we still see John the Baptist later on, and we'll get there in future weeks, I assume, but I, who is off saying, you know, there he is. Let me point out to him. That's the one who's the Messiah that I've been, you know, preparing you for. And it's just bizarre to me that if so many people knew from his very infancy that he was the Messiah, it's just so weird that they have to point him out and say, oh, that's the way, you know, that that's the guy. And a lot of people didn't even know it at the time. And they're even questioning, are you really the Messiah or not? So it, it's yeah, just a yeah. whole fascinating, you know. That is interesting. Let, piggyback off of that. We have multiple places in the Gospels where Jesus is uh, ignored by the people he grew up with. I mean, we, we know that his brothers were not believers, but also he says that his uh, that prophets never respected in their homeland and there's one part of uh, where was the verse I can't remember it's in Luke I think where Jesus reads part of, of Isaiah and uh, he stops mid-verse and says you know I'm the fulfillment of that and they try to kill him <laughs> his, his own people tried to throw him off of a mountain and then also in John 6 there is a uh, uh, there is this moment where the people who he's miraculously fed with all these signs and said, hey, uh, you're, you're claiming to be the bread of life. Aren't you, did, didn't we grow up with you? Aren't you the son of Joseph and Mary? We know you. And yet he was clearly there. Right. So who wants to take verse 10 for us? And we're going to fly through, we're, we're running out of time here. So let's fly through these to get through 10, 11, and 12. This one, I only managed to get six observations for. This is when it really started to fall apart for me. <laughs> I mean, this is such a short one. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, what can you say about this? They saw the star. Uh, I think what it's saying contextually is they saw the star over the house because then the next verse immediately, immediately says conjunction and going into the house. 
but so they see the star it's probably hovering over the house and they rejoice exceedingly so they see this this uh, um you know the terminus of their journey as something to be rejoicing over the the, the miracle of this star hanging over a house is something to rejoice about and they don't just rejoice a small amount they go like hey we're here great job everyone they they rejoice exceedingly with great joy it's great joy so for whatever reason these wise men from the east i find it particularly joyous that they've discovered the king of the jews yep so verse 11 any takers I can take it, but um, I don't know if you want to do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll grab 11. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we've already referenced the gifts in the Old Testament as being uh, something that was prophesied specifically. And so Matthew obviously wants to mention them. Uh, it does say opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, right? So there's treasures. We don't know if these were the only gifts or not. Uh, but it certainly is significant to Matthew to mention those ones in particular. Uh, obviously, Mary is brought up here. It's interesting that they don't mention Joseph, even though we do know in the very next verse after these 12, uh, you know, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. I, <clears throat> so that's fascinating to me that Mary here specifically is the one who is identified as being with Jesus. Uh, they clarify, or Matthew clarifies, hey, it is his mother, because there are other Marys. I, so they fell down and worshiped him. Obviously, they know he's the Messiah. They recognize that this is significant. Although it's interesting to me that they do end up returning to their home areas rather than thinking, oh my goodness, we found the Messiah. Let's stay. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. But that's the next verse. So, But this idea that they fell down and worshiped him shows that they still do know the significance of uh, who they're before. Yes, yeah, so in the next verse, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You're right, it's so immediate. It's like they, they see the child with his mother, they fall down and worship him, they give him treasures, and um, they leave apparently really quickly. But they are there is some stretch of time, some undisclosed, once again, never disclosed stretch of time because they're warned in a dream. Right. So... I think this has to be at least one night because, as I said before, Bethlehem is right next to Jerusalem. So they have to have gone to sleep to be warned not to go back to Jerusalem uh, because they could have walked back to Jerusalem that very day if they got there early enough. So that could have been a real disaster. <laughs> uh, so they stayed for at least a day, I think. Right. So let me ask this now. Out of these first 12 verses, we have this miraculous story of uh, God leading these these wise men uh, to Jesus. And as miraculous as all of this seems, and as much as they're quoting the scriptures and the prophet, and they're talking through the chief priests and the scribes, uh, really the there, there's conspicuously absent is any reference to God himself or, or the Holy Spirit, uh, who you know could feasibly be interpreted as being the star that was guiding them. I, or even Jesus himself, his actual name is, is completely absent from all of this. 
even though we had been given his name in the previous chapter, you know, the angel had told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. I, and yet here we have this story that nobody's mentioning Jesus by name. I, and it, even Matthew, in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And I, I just think it's interesting how Matthew words this. Uh, but then with God being conspicuously ab absent, you go into verse 13, and immediately, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, and right all of a sudden, now God's getting into the story. So we just got three minutes left here, but <clears throat> I want to ask, and I want to make sure it gets asked in every study that we do going forward, why are these 12 verses in the book of Matthew? My answer would be um, emphasize. So based on how many time words, place words, um, people, characters and stuff, this is emphasizing Jesus's incarnation, like into the actual world. And then saying this is like he's a real human being um, and not like some sort of, you know, he didn't, God didn't just put a spirit inside of a corpse and then animate it. Or something like no he's a human being and then um yeah it's the meeting of divinity and humanity together and so he right now he's emphasizing hey this is the physical or the human aspect of what is happening i absolutely agree and especially with matthew in particular with uh, the magi being mentioned is also the validation of the birth of Jesus and the importance that it had at that time. It could be one thing if Jesus was born, but it's another thing that the Magi's recognized who it was being born and the importance of what was happening. I want to say that he fulfilled, he was showing that Jesus's birth was fulfilling multiple prophecies, but also that he came in a politically significant time, that his birth was associated with the Roman occupation and the secular occupation of uh, the, the Jewish homeland. All right. I think those are some good answers. And obviously we have this whole section that is fulfilling prophecy that no other gospel uh, references. And I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, that uh, depending on your version of dating, some people believe that uh, Mark was, most people believe Mark was the first of the Gospels that was written, uh, followed by Matthew. Some people would put John around the same time frame as Matthew, though probably still after. I, so at this time, Matthew would have only had Mark to look at, and even then it might have been a contemporary. He might not have had that book in circulation to be able to check in on it. I, but either way, we do know that Matthew is trying to establish the fulfillment of prophecy, and uh, none of the other gospel writers saw fit to add this section. So it's kind of useful that he did have this in here for us to be able to point to all of those Old Testament things and affirm, yep, Jesus is really who he says he was. All right, that's all we got today. And, uh, you know, next time we'll, we'll make sure to reserve time for application as well. But thanks for covering this. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you guys next week.